0: Hello, listeners. Uh, Adam here, one of the two co conspirators on the podcast that is the podcast Smith and Wall Talk About Satire. I'll hand over to Joe in just a moment. But this is just a little warning, just a little note, a little warning. This is just a little warning um, that what is about to follow is not a normal episode of the Smith & Wall Talk About Sightower podcast, but in fact a very special episode. So long-time listeners will know that February is a really important month for us on the podcast because our first ever episode came out on the 14th of February 2019. Every year since then, we've managed to release a special episode on the 14th of February. We haven't managed it this time due to uh, circumstances beyond our control relating to what we do when we're not on the podcast, which is our jobs uh, as lecturers. And if you want to find out what an idea of the kinds of things that, that we've been, <laughs> that have been happening to us that we've been engaging with and dealing with in February, just Google higher education in the UK. Um, February 2023. So, yes, we did have something in the, on the back burner, though, something special um, that we were looking for an opportunity to release and to hit our... February deadline, we're gonna release it now. So let the music play and then Joe will explain to you what special treat we have for you this February.
1: Hello everyone. What you're about to hear is a recording of a live event that Adam and I did at the Farsley Constitutional on the 26th of October, where we were very kindly invited by Dr. Adam Booth from the University of Leeds to do a little section for a Quantum Source event all about satire, literature, whether satire's ever helped us, whether it's dead, and all the sort of stuff we normally bang on about on the podcast. Um, we were joined by two other Speakers, Professor Tim Wright, who talked about earthquakes and rivers, and Dr Mark Sumner, who talked about seams and chic sustainability. So we came after earthquakes and before seams. Uh, It was a really great event. We had a great time. And we're really grateful to Adam Booth for inviting us. In what follows, we start by talking about Vichy Sunak's then very recent, but not at all unexpected rise to power. And we reflect on what's going on there. Uh, We talk about lettuces and all all of that kind of stuff that everyone was going on about in late October, and then reflect on satire and literature.
0: So, yeah, that's, that's all our jokes, haven't just did them.
1: Yeah, so. yeah <laughs> I think um, I just want to say at the beginning as well, in terms of like moving around the stage, I think if we do that too much, we're going to end up in a sort of bizarre Maypole situation. It's going to go right? a bit like strictly. Alan Partridge yeah. and Lynn or something. So <laughs> yeah. we can go backwards and forwards, but not side to side, like the pawns in a cruel game of chess. And forwards, backwards, up, yeah. down, not back in time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks very much for that introduction. And thank you, Tim, for your paper as well. I particularly appreciate the satirical moment when you made reference yeah. to fracking and the, the situation with the government. So I think it's only fair that we're allowed to talk about satellites. So, Jay, what's your favourite satellite? Have you got one?
1: Oh, I said don't do this because I don't know the names of any satellites. My favourite yeah.
0: satellite is GoldenEye, which fell on Sean Bean in the 1995 film GoldenEye. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, bit of fun trivia. Okay, what are we cool. actually talking about?
1: We're going to talk about what has satire ever done for us. Um, in one way or another, everything we do, really, everything we talk about, every event we ever do, Um, And the very beginnings of our project, which we'll talk about in a moment, kind of begin from the question of like What's the point of satire? Where has satire gone? Is satire dead when things are so bizarre and strange and messed up and the real world feels like it's an episode of the thick of it? What's the point of satire? How can it help us? Um, And how should we how should we go forward? I mean that
0: was the trigger wasn't it? 2016. Yeah. Everyone's saying that satire is dead. You can't do satire in the age of Trump. You can't do satire with Brexit happening. You can't do satire. And yet, satire seems to be happening. A, yeah. So that was our original question. Um, so yeah. we, we, we planned quite a lot of topical humour for tonight. But actually, events have...
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah we, keep, we keep trying to script it, but honestly, you've got like... A lettuce in the crisper of my fridge that's fresher than some of the jokes we could have done. this evening. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, topical satire there. That yeah, was, well,
0: yeah. we were just saying to Mark earlier, actually, that we, the first time we did a live event, it was in 2019 at the York Literature Festival. And by some happy coincidence, the date of the event was on the date that they were supposed to trigger Article 50. So, we wrote the whole script around that. Like, we're leaving Brexit, what's going to happen now? What are the satras going to do? And then they moved it and moved yeah. it and moved it. Which is so obviously
1: hugely disappointing because we were hoping for a hard Brexit that we could <laughs> laugh about. Yeah. We were, but uh,
0: <laughs> we made a vow never to do an event in such topical events yeah. again.
1: So, we're going to try not to do too much topical yeah, so stuff,
0: but no, a bit. No topical humour yeah. tonight.
1: Except when we do, yeah. Oh, is that a can of coke there? Is that
0: some sort of satire that you're attempting there? Yes, Coca-Cola. I am a bit of a Coke addict. coca cola addict. Um, the Coke I like is original Coca-Cola. I don't like Diet Coke. I don't like Pepsi Coke. I don't like Coke Zero. Only original Coke.
1: Do you like Mexican Coke?
0: Mexican
1: Coke is yeah. my favourite. So okay. that was that was Rishi sunak embarrassing himself with some school children, wasn't it? What? Trying to sort of be down with the kids like Rashid Sunak. Rashid Sunuk <laughs> is uh, <laughs> the US president called it. Yeah. yeah, trying to trying to relate to the kids on their own turf by talking about things kids love, including Coke. I mean Coca-Cola and doing this incredibly cringy little yeah. thing, which yeah was retweeted by the accidental partridge account <laughs> it because was. it was so incredibly cringe. So real life just keeps keeps seeming to look like it's satire.
0: But we'll do no more topical satire this evening, yeah. I
1: promise. What are you going to do with that now?
0: <laughs> I don't know, I hadn't thought this far into Okay, well, Change I'll talk about the York Research
1: <laughs> Unit for the Study of Satire while you drink your yeah, delicious yeah. Coca Cola. um So, we come from the York Research Unit from the Study of Satire, um, abbreviated to YRUSOS, which sounds like um, an existential question and a cry for help, and it is in a way <laughs> both of those things at once um, in a fairly consistent fashion. Um, so Adam and myself founded the research unit for the study of satire um, a couple of years ago, and there's two of our colleagues, Rob and Claire, who are also part of that unit. Um, and it draws together researchers um, and satirists and like actual kind of practitioners of satire to historicize, problematize, theorize, teach, and perform in some instances satire and satirical material so all the points in our curriculum where we're teaching something that could be badged as satire or where um where students are in some way or another engaging with satire or where people are writing and thinking about satire um, all comes together under the, the badge of that unit
0: there are quite, lots of quite nice moments when we're in official meetings with people high up in the university about our research unit and they, they read it out, don't they? Like, why are you SOS? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we'll tell you on the picket line. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it happens. And yeah. this is a physical unit, our colleague Clara is with us at the end, but we do a physical unit where we exhibit a piece of art every few months, which is in some ways satirical. Uh, one of them was a balloon with integrity written on it, yeah. a helium balloon, it's slowly deflated after three months it got stolen it got stolen so we didn't engineer this but there was a bizarre moment where we were like integrity has gone missing from the university
1: (laughs) we didn't mean that to happen but but it's quite cool that it did as well yeah and so we also have our podcast smith and ward talk about satire these are some of the episodes we've done and the things we've talked about from um satire in literature satire and cancelling satire on TikTok satire um in relation to all different kinds of sort of writers yeah. and practitioners um and also i think i think we sort of got through lockdown a little bit by recording our, our podcast in the, oh, we did. in the south privacy of our own homes yeah. um, so, yeah, and so, so yeah we've done how many episodes so far 44 episodes yeah Four episodes. 44 episodes
0: yeah. There's quite a nice moment when we arrived and Adam said your podcast has got quite a following it's certainly true that it's got a following um <laughs> and uh yeah you should all follow us as well 44 yeah. episodes and yet after 44 episodes we still come back to this question yeah. pretty much every month, don't we? What's even, even is satire? Is yeah,
1: I think it we're are... going to try and unpack that a bit. So yeah.
0: yeah, it's become our public duty, really, to diagnose whether something is or isn't satire. We get contacted <laughs> by people in the media quite often to describe whether well, it's happened. I was going to say, public
1: duty, contacted by people, sort of <laughs> WhatsApp messages from our mums, maybe. Well, yeah. But, but no, yeah, also, also, it yeah. yeah, it has happened. Do you happened, think this is yeah.
0: satirical, yes or no? Yeah. What even is satire? So here's satire. some definitions. So yeah, I do you want to talk
1: through Dustin Griffin's uh, definition
0: yeah. of satire? So Dustin, Dustin Griffin has made a career uh, over a very long time thinking about what satire is. And in 1995, he gave this definition, which I think is really useful. He says, a work of satire is designed to attack vice or folly. To this end, he uses wit or ridicule. Like polemic rhetoric, it seeks to persuade an audience that something or someone is reprehensible or ridiculous, unlike pure rhetoric. It engages in exaggeration and some sort of fiction. But satire does not forsake the real world entirely. Finally, satire usually proceeds by means of clear reference to some moral standard or purposes. So there's quite a lot of things there to unpack. Satire has to be attacking something. It tends to use wit wit or ridicule. It's persuasive. It's similar to rhetoric, which wants to persuade you of something, but satire engages in exaggeration. There's always some degree of exaggeration or fiction it's often described as literary for that reason, but it doesn't neglect the real world. If you're like, wouldn't it be funny if this was exaggerated in a certain way, but it doesn't have a point, it's not mapped onto a real world particular, yeah. that's just comedy.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing with like Animal Farm. The, the point of Animal Farm, just because that was the example Adam gave before, is not like, wouldn't it be funny if pigs could talk? Mm. It's more like, let's show how these particular dynamics, this particular kind of power structure um how it's working how it's unfair how it's um you know how it's disastrous by looking at what if it was pigs Mm. and and other animals too yeah yeah as stuart Lee said you can tell if it's satire if it's like the real world but it's got animals in it (laughs) yeah and that's one that's one (laughs) definition
0: and it always has some real reference to a moral standard or purpose so the satirist or the, the, the persona that's enacting the satire has an idea of how things should be and they're for want of a better word, calling out the world for not doing that, and they use that through the ret- this rhetorical technique that involves exaggeration. Yeah. So that's what satire is. Okay.
1: So, um, another definition from a glossary of literary terms satire is justified as a corrective of human vice or folly and it ridicules corrigible faults. Corrigible isn't, it's one of those words where we, we hear the opposite, incorrigible. Like we hear ruthless, but we don't hear people being described as ruthless very often. Mm. Um, but so, can you define a, define corrigible?
0: Well, if you <laughs> I'll do it the other way around. If you're incorrigible, <laughs> that means that you don't change, doesn't it? It means you're stuck in your so ways. So you can't be stopped. Yeah. So corrigible means that you will change. So satire, according to this definition, should only attack things that can be changed. Yeah. So what would be an example of if you were going to satirize me for a corrigible fault, what
1: might you use? Well it has to be anything that you could correct. At this point I feel like I'm in sort of if I were in seminar mode, I'd say, just turn to the person next to you and (laughs) and just list their corrigible faults. Like what what could they change? What are their corrigible faults? Yeah. But so yeah, if I were to attack you for a corrigible fault, that could be anything from the way you behave, the way you speak the way you kind of hold yourself or to the shirt you're wearing. But a corrigible fault wouldn't include anything about kind of your... It wouldn't be your height, for mm. example. You can't correct that or, you know, not, not easily. Mm. Um, so anything you can't change, that's kind of not a valid target for satire, if it's something that's not within someone's power to alter. But if it's something that they could reasonably be expected to have another look at and do mm. something different about. So
0: if you said you're wrong, that's corrigible. But if you
1: said right. you're yeah. a
0: grotesquely freak. Yeah. That's incorrigible. Yeah. Yeah. So satire should go after a corrigible fault. And this actually highlights one of the the many of the debates that circle satire in our contemporary discourse in the culture is punching up and punching down, isn't yeah. it? So if you get and often you see people attacking incorrigible faults and then saying, Oh, it's just a bit of satire, isn't it? Well actually no, it's not yeah. actually. If you're saying if you're picking on someone for something they can't change, it's not satire, it's something different. Um, What's this quote about,
1: Jay? Oh right, okay, I'll do this one as well. One of the things that satires nearly always do is express evoke and provoke indignation. This works for the authors, no doubt. But the more significant expression of indignation occurs in the audience where different expressions of public indignation are mobilised or performed. So in other words, the satire... Satire ideally can be of benefit both to the person who is doing it and the people who are hearing it. So it's a... It's a channel for the indignation that the satirist might feel, but it's also an outlet for the indignation that the public are feeling. It gives them a chance to, as Fidian suggests, uh, mobilize or perform that indignation. So it's kind of, ideally, it should function like a big release valve for everyone involved, and it should be almost, there's almost a kind of democracy about it, that it's both, the, the performer and the listeners get to experience that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's quite an important distinction, because if you go back to the origins of satire, someone like Juvenal, for example, the Roman satirist, he, his first satire is, actually has the title, that translates as, why do I write satire? And his answer is, how can I not? Like, in such a it's in such a galling, corrupt, horrible society. And he actually says, a society that is worse than any other society that could ever exist, how can I not? he
1: didn't satyrs. live to 2022. He didn't. But,
0: yeah. he, didn't. but he, um, he positions himself as being outraged, and it's his indignation. But actually, it wouldn't, it wouldn't get any truck with his readers if, it was, if he wasn't giving voice to a, more, a broader indignation, if there wasn't lots of people who felt that way. And often that's the power of Sato, isn't it? When someone says, actually, that's stupid and ridiculous for these reasons, here's the many ways in which you're wrong. And for other people who haven't been able to give voice to that, it's like, oh, thank God. Yeah. someone has said, that's really stupid. Um, and actually that leads to uh, Robert Fiddian's other comment where he says, the overt critical aim of satire is calling out knaves and fools to demand cultural, social or political change. So it's a big part of satire to say, this is wrong, it's worthy of indignation, this isn't working, people who are laughing at what I'm saying agree with me. However, history provides few examples of this working in a direct or instrumental way. There has, been many, there has been vastly more satire than there has been change caused by the correct understanding of satire. And this is actually probably the biggest question we get every time we do an event is...
1: So, so what's the point of it then?
0: Yeah, has satire ever changed anything? Changed anything? And yeah. people always talk about that puppet of Margaret Thatcher, don't they? That yeah. was very funny, but she got in again. So yeah. they, so, so, and and yeah. a lot
1: of politicians who were who satirised or who, you know, where satire was attempted upon them in Spitting Image were, f- were not at all unhappy about that and found that it, you know, mm. a lot of them said like, well, it got people talking, it got people talking about me, about the policies, and mm. uh, yeah, Thatcher was not averse to her puppet, and yeah. yeah. Whereas
0: the new the Spitting Image, uh, that doesn't change anything and it's not funny.
1: Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> law of diminishing returns. But we thought to, to dwell on this question, has satire changed anything? We would share a couple of case studies, has it changed anything? That's a vexed issue, but maybe we'll draw some conclusions as we talk through them. So, yeah. shall I go? go shall yeah, I go, go for, for it? it, yeah. So this is my favourite one ever. You may have heard of this before. This is the case of Jonathan Swift and John Partridge. So, Jonathan Swift, obviously, 18th century, well, I don't know if it is obvious actually, an 18th century substance. He wrote Gulliver's Travels, he wrote lots of other things. Big, I'm a big fan uh, of most of his work. Um, but he was really annoyed by a guy called John Partridge. John Partridge was an astrologer and he would write almanacs. So, in these almanacs, he would predict what was going to happen. He was like churning real coin. This was big business. And basically, Jonathan Swift thought he was a bit of a grifter and he didn't like the whole premise of astrology. And he certainly didn't like the way that John Partridge was profiting from these almanacs. So, he decided to do some satire. And the mode he chose was a hoax. So, he invented a persona called Isaac Bickerstaff, who went on to have an illustrious literary career as a fictional character in lots of other texts that I won't bore you about this evening, but I've spent the last 15 years thinking about. Um, but, uh, but so he invents Isaac Bickerstaff, and Isaac Bickerstaff presents himself in this 18th century print culture. So the 18th century is drowning in cheap print. Um, it's much like the social media situation we have today where there wasn't cheap print, then there was, then suddenly lots more people can print things, and it's hard to verify what's true and what's not. So Isaac Bickerstaff comes to the scene and he publishes a pamphlet where he predicts, he, it's an almanac, and he predicts the death of John Partridge. John Partridge is going to die on the 1st of April. This is my prediction. This goes out um, and uh, it, it gets a bit of a response, not too big a response. People are aware of it. And then on the 1st of April, Swift, writing his biggest stuff, p- produced another pamphlet saying, I was right because John Partridge is now dead. John Partridge, of course, is not dead and was unaware of this. He goes home to his wife that evening. She's horrified. She says, I thought you were dead. I read, <laughs> I read in the cheap print culture of the early 18th century this morning that you are dead. So John Partridge is horrified that someone has done such a grotesque hoax. So he immediately rushes out with the next three days a pamphlet where he explains that he's not dead and the person who said he's dead is the orchestrator of this horrible hoax. To which Isaac Bickerstaff says, what a grotesque hoax to pretend that John Partridge is not dead. This goes on for a year, right? And it ends with John Partridge packing in be it his almanacs and withdrawing entirely from public life. So in a way, that satire worked.
1: <laughs>
0: Have you got an example,
1: Joe, from history? Uh, yeah, I'll risk a little bit of walking to the side and then walking back. Right. So this here is um, Robert Fitzroy, whose name uh, may be familiar to you if you're a fan of the shipping forecast on Radio Four, which um, I'm sure that's you know a lot of people are in this room. So, and um, Fitzroy is one of the, the names in the list on the shipping forecast. He was also um, the captain of the Beagle, Charles Darwin's um, exploratory um, trip around the world when he went to the Galapagos Islands and saw all of the things he saw that made him understand how natural selection works and how how everything everything he saw connected in in this um, growing theory that he's coming up with about evolution and natural selection and the struggle for existence. But after they got home from their trip on the Beagle, Darwin spends the next kind of 20 years putting together The Origin of Species, published in 1859 to a certain amount of controversy and also um, a certain amount of regard and admiration. And Fitzroy kind of spends that time, first of all, thinking about how Darwin is absolutely wrong about everything and what actually definitely did happen is a big flood when Noah made his ark and all the dinosaurs couldn't get on it and that's um, that's why they died out. So he's already kind of backing at least one wrong horse at this point, which is not really earning him any, um, any high regard within the scientific community. But even more perilous to his ultimate reputation than his argument about dinosaurs not physical on Noah's Ark was um, perhaps, I don't know, surprisingly or not surprisingly, um, the attempt to, to offer predictable and reliable and accurate mm-hmm. weather forecasts. So Fitzroy was the first person ever to have weather forecasts published in, um, in the newspapers. So the Times published Fitzroy's weather forecasts from the early 1860s for about a year or so. And when, when they initially came out, the Times very much kind of publicised this. as like, we are at the forefront, we're at the cutting edge of contemporary science. We can tell you for the first time ever what the weather's going to be like tomorrow and what it isn't um, and this was kind of really and um, really seemed like a big deal but unfortunately um Fitzroy just kept guessing it wrong um, and <laughs> day after day after day and um, and you know this this was like you know i always think about him when i think about um the ian mccaskill there's not going to be a hurricane and um, which damaged his reputation for some time to come but not only did fitzroy kind of get it got to a point where he was guessing it wrong more often than he was guessing it right but then the times kind of turned on him and wrote an editorial about how you know our esteemed weather prophet has forecast rain on 27 days out of 28 and it was only on the other one that it did rain and vice versa and they did kind of was publishing the forecast they were mocking him and then they eventually took them out fitzroy himself was being satirized in punch um, the weather forecast stopped being issued in the Times and didn't come back for a very long time, because um, they're tainted with this idea of being unreliable and kind of quack science. Um, and Fitzroy eventually um, committed suicide. Uh, he, not only did he stop doing his weather forecast, but he um, committed suicide in a state of kind of financial penury and general shame and mockery. So it's not it's not just that the weather forecast went wrong, but the general atmosphere of relentless mockery and lampoonery and um, mm. were, were a large part in, in finishing that guy. All good. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah.
0: so, so that's nice. <laughs> they yeah, they cancelled John Partridge yeah. and then Fitzroy didn't make it either. Yeah. Daniel Defoe, this is a more cheerful one. So Daniel Defoe, uh, he decided that he was annoyed by the way that high Tories were extremely xenophobic and didn't like progress and didn't like industry. The Tories in the 18th century different from the Tories we have now, uh, just to clarify. Uh, But he was annoyed by their xenophobia and so on and so forth. So he decided to write a pamphlet called The Shortest Way with Dissenters, in which he would parody the voice, parody and exaggerate the voice of uh, these high Tory people. Um, And this is just a brief extract. I have a note. Do you remember that? uh, We thought things were bad then, but that was, uh, that was 12 years ago. So anyway, um, he had to, <laughs> yeah, he, he decided he was going to parody the voice of hysterical Tories, um, and, he, and he wrote a thing that went like this. Alas, the Church of England, what with popery on one hand and schematics on the other, has, uh, how has she been crucified between two thieves? Now let us crucify the thieves. Let her foundations be established upon the destruction of her enemies, the doors of mercy being always open to the returning part of the deluded people, let the obstinate be ruled with the rod of iron, and may God Almighty put into the hearts of all the friends of truth to lift up a standard against pride and the Antichrist, that the posterity of the sons of error may be rooted out from the face of this land forever. Unfortunately, people didn't realize he was joking. They, uh, not only did people not realize that this was a parody, some people agreed with it and celebrated it. And uh, three months later, he had to publish an apology in which he explained what he had actually been doing. Um, and he said that his intention had been to make other people's thoughts speak in my words and make them recognise the absurd and offensive language he had been using as being theirs. Uh, he then later in the same apology explained that he had fallen foul of becoming too good an impersonator. So um, the people he was, he was making fun of didn't realise and actually agreed with the exaggerated version. So. Uh, uh, and the people who didn't like what he was saying didn't realise he was kidding. So he got into a bit of bother, he got out of it again, and wrote Robertson Crusoe for... It's a bit like Rosie Holtz on Twitter,
1: Twitter, isn't it? Yeah. everyone thinks
0: she's a real tarion. Yeah. It yeah. is, yeah, it is. So, uh, yeah, has satire made a difference? Well, it's caused quite a lot of bother for the people <laughs> yeah. involved in those instances. Is there any contemporary examples where
1: satire made, might have made a difference, Joe? No, there's no contemporary examples. <laughs> yes, of course there's contemporary... Basically, over the last... Um, the last few years and perhaps the last few months in particular we've seen that as fast as any any event happens there's this kind of democratic satire on social media and also these kind of tropes and memes like the liz Truss lettuce and so on um or the the time over the summer when boris johnson couldn't kind of appear anywhere or do anything without kind of hordes and masses of people arriving to satirize everything that he'd done and <laughs> shouting about of singing satirical songs about Partygate, sorry, (laughs) Uh, but songs about Partygate and playing the Benny Hill theme tune wherever the Tories were, Um, it it did kind of become impossible for politicians to go about their business or to do anything without being met by satire Mm -hmm. at every turn. And I do think that's satire as opposed to people just coming out and like mobbing them or shouting at them, although, of course, that that happened too. And, uh, I expect that tradition will, will continue for some time to come.
0: It's been fascinating to see, if only because it gives you another it gives us another reason to... something else to think about as we witness... <laughs> everything. Um, <laughs> but like with yeah. Boris Johnson, he originally courted satire, didn't he? He appears on Avogadro, yeah. he creates this persona, he gets to the point where it's like, oh, you can't mock him without giving him more power because he's feeding into that. But does, we do actually seem to have reached a tipping point where there is so much satire, for me, is so ridiculous, it starts to affect things like the economy and the national reputation, and the satire is adding fuel to that fire and eventually it becomes to a point where it becomes untenable. It's a shame that the threshold was so far (laughs) uh, in that direction, but it does seem to have happened. So satire may have changed those things, but the thing I'm most persuaded by is the pressure valve theory of satire. Um, What's this, Joe?
1: Well, we kind of touched on it before, didn't we? The idea that Robert Fideon noted that. You know, satire is, is of benefit both to the person who's doing it and the people who are listening to it. And that in a way, it, perhaps it's a bit unfair to expect that satire might ever actually change anything. Perhaps we can't really look to the satirist to come along and sort of root out governments we don't like or change injustices in society. The best that we can perhaps hope for is a moment of thinking, yes, that's what I think too. I get that joke. There's a person who's saying what I think. That's, that's a kind of healthy, if temporary way. For me to deal with the anger or the rage or the um just despair that i'm feeling in this moment that perhaps satire is it perhaps the main thing it can offer us is that sense of of community for a moment of of some kind of sense of a tribe of people who think the same way and get the same jokes and are angry about the same things
0: it's like the difference
1: between being at work and saying
0: goodness me i'm so angry about the bureaucratic nightmare we constantly have to endure and saying well, I'm parodying the voice of that bureaucracy, isn't it? It goes from just being an observation of the problem to becoming a parody, a pastiche of it, and then through that you get control. There's actually a, a scholar of satire called Dieter del Kirk who looks at this phenomenon in the case of like, really serious illness, so people who've been diagnosed with cancer or terminal illness, and he's, he's interviewed them, and it seems there's a moment where they make a joke about it, and once they've made a joke about it, it allows them to rationalise the situation and actually come up with a, a way of moving forward. I mean, that's quite an extreme example, but I think we do see that in, in um, society. Something that the comment, the cartoonist Matt Bores says, he says, I don't like the fact that the world is run by a revolving cast of douchebags, but I do like cartooning about it. I like addressing reality the way things are without sugarcoating them. Satire is a way to stay sane amid all of this. And, and that seems like a glib thing to say, but I think it's true. And it's something that Robert Fidian talks about as well. He says, as a part of an active press, satire provides an outlet for public passions and disputes, short of actual violence,
1: yeah, and it, it's, it's a way for a bunch of people to stand outside the gates of Downing Street, but in a way that is like not not actually violent and threatening. But it is also a way for them to channel and express the emotions that, if the if everything was slightly shifted, if the mood was slightly different, might actually be violence. But instead, it's channeled via kind of parody or pastiche and satire in a way that is. Perhaps ultimately safer for everyone. Mm, yeah,
0: <laughs> instead of putting on masks and singing it is a work party, yeah. they could have been burning the place <laughs> yeah. now. So you, see, actually, you think yourself
1: lucky Boris Johnson. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, and it's interesting as well to see the real value of satire, the difference that satire makes to look at the places that don't have it. So for example, Russia, North Korea, China. China have actually banned all images of Winnie the Pooh because it looks too much like their president. So there's, um, there are places, and also yeah. another place that bans satire, Britain during a royal period of mourning.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, w- it was explicitly the case that when the TV schedules and listings were, were looked at again in the immediate wake of the death of the Queen, and um, the things that were judged to be okay was... I mean, there was, there was a lot of that one about where people do up a chateau. I feel like everything I wanted to watch, but instead of that being on, it was people doing up that chateau. Um, and you could have like old comedy, safe old comedy, but no satire, nothing like, have I got news for you, can be on when everybody is, you know, in this national period of mourning. And I think that's really interesting because satire is among other things, like it's it's a um, it's a barometer, isn't it, of a healthy society where people are able to mock and are able to channel that any rage or fury or cynicism they might be feeling to channel it through satire Mm. and when you can't do it um that's either a sign that you know there's there's something something troubling going on or that temporarily things are very far from the way that they normally are but if you can't you can't satirize what can you do Mm. So much like
0: the research evaluation framework, the impact of satay is quite hard to quantify, but <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't want to see a society without it.
1: Yeah, and <laughs> we had a look at it, and uh, it was quite boring, and just lots of stuff about the chat. Thanks very much for listening. Ah, thank That's you.
0: Well, we do hope you enjoyed that foray back in time back to october 2022 if you did enjoy it please do give us a yell let us know you can hit us up on twitter at satire no more you can find us on instagram at talk about satire you can send us a good old-fashioned email at satire more at gmail.com we always love to hear from you we like to know uh, what you're enjoying. We're less keen on hearing what you're not enjoying but we do like to hear what you are enjoying and if you'd like if you enjoyed hearing one of our live events in audio format. Uh, we'd love to know because we've got a couple more that we could share. Um, and actually, on that note, if you would, if you were in the York area or you could travel to York, and you'd like to see us in the flesh, we are actually doing a live event on the eleventh of March at three pm. That's a, sati- a Saturday, a satire day. Um, the event is called "Satirical Women in the Olden Days." It's at the Creative Centre at York St John University. Um, and here's the blurb: For every Jonathan Swift, there's a Lady Mary Montague. For every Alexander Pope, a Mary Leiper. For every Evelyn Waugh. Estella Gibbons. Adam and Joe will share some of their favorite examples before reflecting on how a new attention paid to the role played by women in the history of British comedy Complicates our assumptions about women comedy history and literature. It's a free event You can find it online by googling the title of the event satirical women in the olden days or smith and war or york lit fest and satire Any of those you know how to use google you don't need me to tell you uh, If you can join us we'd love to see you there We'll perhaps Uh, record that and maybe make that available as a future episode. Uh, But we'll also be back in your ears much sooner this time. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our March episode for which we've got two fantastic guests. um, And we're going to be talking about the role of the role played by women in the history of satire in the 19th century and beyond. We look forward to speaking to you then. But for now, sit up, shut up and eat our satire. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. syrup.